Oh, you can do better than that. Good morning. Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Come on, don't lie to them like you did last week. Mean it this time, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Crossroads Church. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. Actually, he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. I want to hear you all the way from the Lompoc campus. Uh, And uh, we wrote it on the wall and uh, we're going to do that in Lompoc as well uh, for you, Fred, who's been waiting for me to do that for a long time in Lompoc. Uh, We're so glad that you're joining us as well. So whether you're at the Lompoc campus or here in Buellton, if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, we're so glad if you are joining us at the Lompoc campus. Maybe you didn't realize there's a group of people right now at 213 North J Street in Lompoc. They're gathered together. They had live music. They had coffee. They got uh, some better coffee than we got at times. And, uh, and, uh, Thanks to Pastor Tyler, and so uh, we're so glad that you're joining us. It doesn't matter where you gather or when you gather. It matters that you gather. Maybe you're watching on the online campus. Uh, See, the idea of the church, and we got to change our thinking about this, even though our vocabulary kind of goes, we say we go to church and we say, Hey, I'm on my way to church. Even my daughter is a pastor. She's two years old. Hey, daddy goes to the church, but here's the reality. The church is not a place you go to. It is something that you are and are a part of the Greek word that we use in order to get church is ekklesia, which means the gathering of the people of God. That is the church. And so when you gather, you are the church. And man, you're a good looking church. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, thank you. Right? Like, and so, uh, We're so glad that you're joining us. Hey, turn in your Bible. We've been in the series for nearly a year now, and and more than just a series, we've been going through the book of the Gospel of John. And so I want you to take out your Bible. Turn to John chapter number 19. And uh, if you're new to the Scriptures, you can start in the right and turn left, and you'll find it much faster. You can go two-thirds of the way through from the beginning. You'll find some guys' names, Matt, Mark, and Luke and John. And we'll be in John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And before I do that, let me kind of lay uh, some expectations for the sermon today. Uh, I don't always do that. I like to keep you guessing on what is this guy talking about, right? And uh, But today I want to kind of set our expectations for um, our text today specifically. And so I'm going to, I'm going to read the text and then I'm going to talk a little bit about how we think about the text. I'm then going to maybe bring up some observations 
from the text and then maybe some implications towards the end because the reality is is not every particular passage is uh, is equal in how you read it it's not equally applicable it's not necessarily equal in the weight of what we're reading because the reality is is uh, when we get to certain passages uh, it's very difficult to just read that passage and kind of move on with our day there's some things that we're going to read here that are going to be gripping for us and so I want to set the precedent for kind of what um, we are dealing with this morning and so uh, chapter 19 starting in verse one you can say amen when you're there says then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him We're going to talk about what that means towards the end of the sermon. So we're just going to kind of move on with some of that, but we're going to come back to it. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hell, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him for yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the seat of judgment at the place called the, the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest, the chief priest, the religious leaders said, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this story that we wrestle with. The reality is, is you are not still slain. You have risen and you are coming again. But we look and are shaped by the reality of your suffering. So help us today to be shaped, molded, 
challenged, encouraged, convicted. Let us be propelled forward by the goodness of your grace. And we thank you and we praise you and let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. And it's a a powerful text, a gripping text. And it would, I'd be taken back and maybe a little remiss if I just opened with this text and then moved on to some personal story and tried to tell you something funny from my life that somehow gives you an illustration or makes this more real for you after reading the gripping and emotional narrative that John leaves for us here. See, the reality as a speaker, as I wrestle with all the time, is in my sermon, uh, I want to endeavor to be a good Speaker, and I think most times I do a pretty good job of that, right? Anyway, uh, whatever. And uh, see, the gripping part is, is I wrestle with, I want to be good, but the reality is I also endeavor to be helpful, and those aren't always the same thing. And so I, I, I wrestle with to say what will make you like me, and I really want you to like me. And that's the reality is I, I, I want to say something that maybe inspires you, maybe challenges you, and maybe sets you up for the week. And that's the, the gripping part of what pastoral ministry is, is the wrestling match of that. Because I come to the text every single week, and there, there's two things I have to think about. I have to think about what the text actually says and means. And then I have to realize that there are people in front of me, faces that I will see. And somehow I have to try to make this bridge, this this leap from 2,000 years ago and make it relevant for you. And you come maybe not expecting or ready. Someone invited you to church. You didn't realize, man, that's a gripping story. That's a, that's a challenging story. I, I don't know that I want to hear that on this particular Sunday. I mean, Good Friday, that's fine. I know what to expect. But see, here's the reality is the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not merely ideology or philosophy. Christianity is an event. It's called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, that's the reality. It's, it's far beyond inspiration. It's far beyond ideology. And so as much as I would like to come in and maybe try to challenge you and give you, uh, inspire you and gear you up, I want to be helpful to you in navigating the most important truth in human history. Is Jesus who he says that he is? And did he do what the Bible claims that he did? And did he live and die and was buried and three days later pull off the greatest day in human history and now our world revolves around this event we count time based on it he's flipped the world upside down and then the first day of the week on the lord's day people gather together to ponder and consider this great truth as much as i want to be good and make you like me i want to be helpful in my ability to help you navigate the thing that you have to consider above all else is who is this jesus and so I want to be helpful to you. 
See, I got to be honest, there, there are moments that I dread these particular sermons. As I was preparing last week, and, and, and there, there's some funny stories at times, and, and I was preparing slides. If you were here last week, I used some slides on the screen, but it was in the back, and, and, and one of our volunteers asked me, is this a new sermon, Pastor Sam? And I, I thought, every sermon is a new sermon, right? Like, I, I mean, you'll hear some repetitive things. Like, I start the same way to set the precedent for what this is about. This is a story about Jesus. So I want you to walk away, not with the name of Crossroads or the name of a pastor, but to know that the point of this and every single sermon under the sun should be about the person of Jesus. Someone say amen to that. See, every single sermon should be the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at some point and the implications of that. And you could study that for all of human history and never plunge its depths. And so if you hear a sermon that does not talk about that, it's not really a sermon, it's merely an essay. It's merely an argument. See, one of the reasons we go through books of the Bible is it sets the precedent. It doesn't make it just what I want to convey to you. So a year ago, we set out in the Gospel of John, and we begin to preach the Gospel of John. Maybe you show up, you go, man, I haven't been here for that. That's okay. Every single sermon is going to have a sense of completeness. Every sermon is going to have this full totality of the story. So you walk away, maybe if this is your first time here, and we are so glad that you are here, you're going to hear the full gospel every single week. But what we hope is you come from just a visitor to a regular attender, and then you hear these stories, some of the same themes, and it begins to resonate with you. You remember it, and then maybe even more than just a regular attender, you jump into relationship. You dive into the core of what we have around here. Small groups are that way, the way to do that, and in a way that you, you then take the sermon and wrestle with the implications. And if you've been a part of this last session small group, man, you're going through John from a completely different perspective. You're asking questions and learning in different ways. And it takes it beyond just a sermon that someone gives to you, but you become a part of a conversation that's been happening for thousands of years. And so we, we want you to wrestle with these particular truths. And, and, and yet each sermon, I want to try my best to complete the fullness of the story for you. But the reality is, is every single sermon, not just once a year leading up to Easter. See, here's the reality is we started this book a year ago and actually the timing of the Lord, we're going to be at the resurrection on resurrection Sunday, not planned, but begin to see, wow, this is where we're going to end up. And, and yet here we are today and I didn't pick this text. It's just the next text. I asked my small group a couple weeks ago, that's right, I'm a part of a small group. I'm part of the core of Crossroads Church. And I asked my small group, I said, hey, pray for me because the next few weeks are gonna be difficult sermons. I said, hey, can you, can you pray for me because I, I gotta get up every week and I wanna be good, I wanna be, I wanna be inspiring, I want people to walk away and go, man, that's a place I want to be. But more than that, I have to label for them what the text actually says and the implications of that and not just do that once a year when I want to, but to do it faithfully every single week. See, if every single sermon should have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, 
in it, and you agree with that, and I think you should agree with that, and we should introduce a little bit of groupthink. Every single sermon should have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Somebody say amen to that, right? So then, all of your prayer life, all of your devotional life, if you think yourself to be a Christian and a spiritual person, then everything you think should revolve around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. More than just a genie in a bottle that we begin to go to, and, and our, our butler who's in heaven who brings us what we will, we look at the purposes of God and ultimately the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and this helps shape our worldview. This helps shape how we see everything. And so we get to particular passages like this, and it want to help us because the reality is, is some of us have heard the story. Maybe you've watched Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Maybe you've seen a play reenactment, an Easter play. You've seen the story. You've seen the Chosen series that has been out for a couple years. Maybe you have some some kind of uh, preconditions or preconceived notions of what Christianity is like. If we be honest, there are some things when it comes to Christianity that we kind of propagate forward and we kind of put the Bible's stamp on and, and yet the reality is, is we've never actually read that in the Bible ourselves. Somebody say, oh no to that like like I mean even in the culture that we're in today with all the world events how many times have you heard someone come up to you and say hey everything that's going on right now is happening from the bible right how many of you've heard that statement like listen biblical event this is all biblical right now and the next question you should ask and and if you are the one who is saying it ask yourself did you hear that or did you actually read that oh that's good preaching thank you pastor sam glory to god amen hallelujah right did did i hear that or did i actually do what the bible tells me to do in timothy to be faithful to the scriptures to be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed that i can rightly divide truth that i work hard see shame comes when you believe something to be true and find it to be folly i step out on a lie and trip stumble and fall because what i thought was sure footing what i thought was going to be a great business investment ended up being a ponzi scheme and shame is ever waiting i think something to be true and I, I i around the dinner table begin to propagate something that i saw and i find out it was simply a babylon b mockery but yet maybe i put it out to be truthful see in our culture we're talking about fake news and what's true and what we share and as much as we should be careful about what we propagate and vetting and then you're asking the question well who fact checks the fact checkers and who's true and and how do we know what is truth and we're going to talk about that but if we should even vet those things if we should be responsible in what we propagate from our social media feeds and from our dinner tables how much more should we be careful when we begin to give the stamp of approval and say things like that's in the bible yet never actually found that in the Bible, that's very good preaching. Thank you. And someone say amen to that. 
That's the reality. How much more should we be careful? Because if we actually believe the Bible is a story about Jesus, when we say the Bible says, or isn't that in the Bible, or events are taking place that are in the Bible, we're giving the stamp of approval of the Bible, therefore giving the stamp of approval of Jesus himself. And we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, meaning we should be hesitant and careful and it should be a weighty thing for us to begin to say that Jesus says if Jesus did not say. And see, it's stories like this that maybe we hear once a year on, on Good Friday or leading up to Easter and yet we've never quite read the story because sometimes it's hard to read. It's not necessarily our favorite Bible verses. What's your favorite Bible verse? When they took him out and flogged him. I don't think that's what we would say. But sometimes our favorite things are not always the best things for us. We know that to be true when we go to the cupboard at night, friends. Although we find things to be our favorite, does not mean that they are the best things for us. Because if you were to find someone who is faithful, who is a, a believer, if you were to find someone who has integrity, someone who's further along in the faith, if you were to ask them, hey, how did you become that? How did you become so faithful? How did you become an integrous person? How do you believe? How do you have faith and love like that? More often than not, they will not tell you about a good time. They will tell you about a terrible time. They'll say, friends, I didn't know how we were going to get through it, but God was faithful. I didn't know how we were going to make it through that time, but God was just and loving and gracious. Listen, friends, they may not be your favorite times, but they may be the best times for you. So count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face various trials and tribulations for the testing of your faith produces pure gold. And that's the half-brother of Jesus, James. And so if you disagree with me uh, in this moment, you're disagreeing with the half-brother of Jesus and he's closer to Jesus than you were. And that means that you should not argue with him. Amen. Count it's tough. It's difficult. It's hard, right? You're in the middle of the story. You're in the middle of the trial. It's hard to see beyond the page. We get trapped in the story. We get trapped in the page where we realize that it's in conflict. It's in trial. It's in these moments of difficulty. These are the moments that sometimes the best things that ever happened to us and for us came to fruition. And yet, that's these moments in the text. We read those gripping moments. If we say, what's your favorite Bible verse? Oftentimes, it is not the essence of the gospel put on display, the suffering servant in front of a wicked government who has put him on trial for the world to see. And now we have to wrestle with our own authority, our own guilt, and who is the person of Jesus. This is where we are in the text doesn't make for our favorite sermons, maybe the best ones. Not because of good communication, but because we would endeavor to be helpful that the story of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection is the most important truth that you can navigate. It's the most important truth that you can wrestle with. And here we are. If you have your Bibles, keep them open. As we look through the text, 
Verse 1 of chapter 19 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him, struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Wait, what? And we're going to deal with the implications of what a Roman flogging is later in the sermon because I don't think the sermon will ever recover if I begin to give you the details of what a Roman flogging is. But I want to give you the reality of it. But what does Pilate do? Pilate first, it says, then Pilate took and flogged him. But see, Pilate didn't do it himself. And yet the Roman soldiers are the ones who carry out the duty. And, and here's what happens. It, it, the person in charge, the person in authority gets the credit for or the blame for. That's not a new thing. That's an old thing. That's always happened. When you see a, a, a bill passed through as a law, it's always attributed to the president at the time. He did that. Uh, that person, that senator, that mayor, that governor. I, I mean, many of you were like, look at all these fancy lights up there. I can't believe Pastor Sam put those up there. And I was like, I didn't put any of them up there, right? Uh, somebody else did that. And, and yet, uh, whoever's in charge, if we change something, man, it gets attributed to who's in charge, who the pastor is, who's the authority leader. And Pilate is accredited for having Jesus flogged. And you need to keep that in your mind as you read the wrestling match that Pilate will go through because his actions and what he's actually wrestling with are at odds with one another. Have you ever done something that's at odds with what you think you ought to do? every one of us. And yet you see, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns together. They put it on his head. They put a pur purple robe. Purple is the color of royalty. They begin to mock him. Well, they think he's a king. They beat him within an, in an inch of his life. And after they beat him within an inch of his life, they take a crown made of thorns and they plunge it into his forehead. And now blood is dripping down his face. And now over his wounds, they have put a robe over him as it begins to stick to his skin from his wounds. And he's standing in front of them. And this is the Jesus that Pilate parades out in front and says, I did this to show you I have no fault with him. Like, what? What are you doing? I mean, your words and what you're saying, they contradict your actions. I mean, can you believe this? It's like me waking up my child and spanking him first thing for anything he might do the rest of the day. Like, hey, I'm just going to get this out of the way. I'm going to do this so you know I find no fault with you. Like, what? Does that make sense? So like, 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 your actions and what is in the best interest of truth are not always the same. Let me say that again. That what is in the best interest of truth and your own best interest is not always the same. See, the reality is, is you will always act in your own best interest. Anybody in here act against your own best interest? I had three hands go up in the 9 a.m. I was like, put your hands down, you spiritual people, right? <laughs> yeah, that's me, right? No, you don't. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that you act in a way that is in your own best interest. That's why 
He says the greatest command. When they try to trick him, say, Rabbi, Rabbi, tell us what is the greatest command. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and you're to love him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. What does that mean? That means you're to love God with everything, Sunday through Saturday. You're to love him and not to compartmentalize and go, that's my Jesus thing and, th- and this is my physical thing and this is my mental health over here and this is my, my me time over here. No, 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 no. You are to love God and to stand before him knowing that his ways are better than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts and you're to love him with everything in you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then the second is the same as the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because he knows you have a propensity to love yourself. He knows you already will act in your own self-interest. He already knows that you love yourself. And so he says, love with all of your being, love God and love others the same in all of the commands, all the things that you can think that are good and lovely and true, all the things that are righteous. Are you loving God and loving others as yourself? But the reality is, is we do not act in the interest of others. We act in our own interests. That's why Philippians will start. That famous passage that we always quote, Philippians 2, that says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, although being fully God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he poured himself out, limited himself, took on the form of a servant. The king became a slave, lived a selfless, obedient life unto death, death on a cross. And that's why Jesus has the most famous name in human history. Before this line, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others more valuable than yourself, having this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He begins to show you that the ultimate ethic, the supreme ethic of the universe is to not be selfish, but to be self-giving. Not to take from, and yet Pilate is a display for us of those who will act in their own self-interest. But Pilate is no different than Peter, did you notice? Peter denies Jesus, and he's riddled with his own guilt. And yet John, with the help of the Holy Spirit, begins to paint these pictures right beside each other. Because we'll, we'll, we'll give Peter a pass and look at Pilate with condemnation, but the reality is is that this book is a story about everyone else getting it wrong and one person getting it right. And that's good news for you and I, friend. The reality is this is a story that shows us on Friday, everyone is left of the cross and Jesus stands alone. The reality is, is no one has chosen God. No one seeks after him. Romans would ring true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, whether it's Peter, whether it's Pilate, whether it's Mary, whether it's John, all have scattered. And Jesus stands in contrast to everyone else. Yet we see Pilate here carrying out this act that doesn't align with the truth. He actually thinks there's no guilt in him. There's no fault. 
He knows his own guilt. He knows his own shame. And yet he stands confronted with the person of Jesus. He has him flogged. And yet he believes that there's no fault in him. Then why did he have him flogged? The reason why is he puffs out his chest. He shows the other uh, people in the crowd, look what I'll do to you. Even if I find no guilt with you, this could be your lot. Even if there's no charge against you, know who's in charge. Pilate is showing the crowd, look what will happen to you if you get in my way. Look what will happen even if I find no, even if I'm sympathetic towards him. I did this so that you would find, and he actually puts it out in front of the religious leaders to see if they'll back off. Pilate's wrestling with truth. We see this open wrestling match. But here's the reality is no one's going to choose. And it was always in the plan of God. Isaiah will say this. He tells the prophet Isaiah, go tell them that they'll be ever seeing and never see, ever hearing and never hear. Least they hear and repent and turn. The reality is, is that everyone's eyes were blinded. Why? So that ultimately Jesus could go through the plan that he had always set out to do. And yet, what we can see here is that there's this overlap and we can wrestle with the implications of it because the reality is is that the, the Romans were in charge of the known world, but they would allow individual provinces like this particular province to be ruled. And it was kind of a way of you can have some autonomy, but don't get out of bounds. And yet there's been riots. It's, it's kind of like, hey, be seen, not heard, go about your business. But if you make a ruckus, we'll have to shut it down. And Pilate's been a part of this. There's been riots. There's been people who, who have been revolutionary. And at times, they've actually been able to make a difference. So the Maccabean revolt, they've been able to take uh, different parts of their territory back, but then the Romans would come in and shut it down. They would kill the leader, and it would stop. And yet, Pilate stands in front of Jesus, this leader, beaten within an inch of his life, and yet he's still wrestling with, there's something here that just doesn't make sense from my natural perspective. And that's the thing we have to wrestle with. Here's this leader, this, this Roman official looking at the person of Jesus, and yet he's placating to the religious crowd. Why is that? Because he knows the religious leaders have the hearts of the people. And people can use platforms to persuade people in certain ways. Notice that politics and pulpits have always had some type of intermingled nature to it. Maybe you thought that's a new thing for politicians to show up to churches and try to speak or different movements or rallies. And yet the danger of that we see here, it's not a new conversation. It's always been a conversation. The religious leaders are bringing Jesus to Pilate and he's going to carry out, yet he's negotiating with them. He shows his authority, but why doesn't he just pull the trigger? Because he knows they control the hearts of the people, the mob. He's pressured by what is popular. And what is actually principled? I mean, he's dealing with cancel culture. He's dealing with the mob. He's dealing with the PR of the people. And yet the priests are beginning to stir the crowd. They begin to chant, oh, we don't have a king. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate keeps trying to go, come on, back up. Then they say this. 
Then they say this. After Pilate says, okay, fine, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate said to them, take him for yourself. The Jews then answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now notice the next verse here. I want you to look at it. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was even more afraid. Now, why is he afraid? What is he wrestling with? Now, here's what you got to know is that in this particular culture, multiple Caesars have come and went and multiple Caesars have claimed to be the son of God. And at this particular time, there would have been currency that would have had Caesar's inscription on it. And on it would have been the epitaph, the son of God with Caesar's image. That's the story of Jesus when the, the rabbis try to trick Jesus about taxes. He says, do you pay Caesar or do you pay God? And, and the idea is that Jesus would have taken one of their coins and pointed to it and said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Now the implication is the imago Dei, that you are made in the image of God. So what Jesus is saying is give him his coins, his precious metals, the things that you cannot take with you, but give to God what is God's. You are his image bearer. Give him everything. And yet, that would have been the coin. Maybe even Pilate has one of those coins in his pockets. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees at his platform. There would have been his, his kind of headquarters, a place that he could go behind the stage, if you will, and talk with his peons and, and, and have counsel and the judge's chambers. And then he comes out to the court, the masses and the chief priest would have been front row. And he would have said to them, take him for yourself. They go, no, 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 that's not us, but you need to crucify him because he makes himself the son of God. And what he's, they're trying to suggest is he is an insurrectionist against the very Caesar who's in your pocket that says the son of God. But then it says Pilate was even more afraid. Now some would suggest that he was more afraid because the solidification of him being an insurrectionist or a revolutionary, maybe he's afraid of his boss Caesar, but he's already beaten Jesus within an inch of his life. And yet they can do whatever they will with him. He's not afraid of his boss how do I know that? Because it says, then Pilate was even more afraid. And then he goes into his headquarters with Jesus and he looks at him. And he says, where are you from? Where are you from? Why, why would he do? He knows the facts. We talked about this last week. Facts do not always add up to truth. Why? Because I don't have all the facts. You don't have all the facts. Amen. You don't have all this perspective. And yet as I gather facts, all of a sudden the truth begins to become more vivid to me. Pilate knows the facts. He's from Galilee. He was born in Nazareth. He, he, he's, he's never, I've, I've never heard of him anywhere other than this region. And yet the Pharisees and Sadducees, the chief priests have brought him to me. He knows where he's from. Why does he ask him where is he from? See, if you're asking where someone's from, you're asking for their credentials. You're asking, wait, 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 what agency are you with? Who do you work for? 
Where are you from? If you're asking about authority, one of the first questions you would ask is, wait, 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 wait. Where are you from? And is that somewhere that supersedes where I'm from and where I'm associated with? He puffs out his chest in front of the crowd, but he's different behind the scenes. You ever felt that way? You ever get ready and go out in your vest and you're like, I'll fake it until I make it. <laughs> right? You ever try to put on your, your best foot for you? Try to go out and then you know who you are behind the scenes. So here's what this tells us is that Pilate, who we know is a cynical man, a hard man, the history books would tell us that, that Pilate was a difficult man. I remember arguing in the sermon prep with the guys who knew some of the extra biblical documents that would give us the history of Pilate. And then I read in a commentary this week, don't get it confused by what you read in John 19. Pilate was no friend of Jesus. And you need to remember that when I'm going to tell you the reality of what Pilate did by having him flogged. But here's what I know. Here's what you should hear. That even the hardest of hearts even the most cynical, even the person with the most authority, they are not beyond the grip of truth when they are confronted with the person of Jesus. See, the reality is, is he's asking, wait a second, are you in charge of me or am I in charge of you? Now we know the truth. And Pilate's beginning to sense that this beaten man who's barely spoken a word seems to have some type of authority. See, authority is different than power. Just because you have power, my dad can beat up your dad. Just because you, you think doesn't mean you actually have authority. Persuasion, people actually listen to. Pilate's confronted with it and he looks at him and he says, where are you from? Jesus doesn't say anything. He says, will you not speak to me? Can you imagine Pilate begging? Jesus, just say something. Tell me. Let me know. If I'm doing something wrong here, tell me. The hardest of hearts, conflicted, wrestling with. Where are you from? Won't you speak to me? Then Jesus answered. Actually, before he says that, Pilate says, will you not speak to me? And then he puffs out his authority. He says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Where are you from? You think you have more authority than me? Let me tell you my authority. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin, has the greater sin. Now, why would Jesus say that? Jesus who knows all, sees all, nothing is hidden from him if Pilate wasn't wrestling with his own guilt and his own position in the plot of the story. 
See, the reality is, is we all, no matter what authority place we are, we can fake it till we make it, but we will all be riddled with our own guilt because the reality is we all stand guilty as charged. You wanna talk about equality? We are all equal at the foot of the cross. All of us fall short of who he is. He says, listen, the ones who brought me to you have the greater guilt. It's why Pilate will later wash his hands in front of the mob and say, no, 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 his blood is not on my hands. What is he afraid of? He knows who really is in charge. He knows who has authority. But the reality is, is sometimes even when we know, it doesn't always impact what we do. See, here's what you need to know. Is when it says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. A Roman flogging would have been one of the most gruesome things that could ever happen to a human being next to crucifixion. It's like you want to die or you're going to be tortured. And torturing might mean that you die. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. A Roman flogging would have meant that a Roman soldier took, and some people would call it a cat of nine tails, which is, we wouldn't even have that term until the British. But it was like a cat of nine tails, meaning that it was a whip that had multiple strands to the bottom. And on the end of the strands, these wicked men would find ways to be even more wicked. And so they would attach shards of glass, animal bone and fish bone. And then they would take that whip and they would dip it in animal's blood that had been sitting there for who knows when. So if you actually survived the flogging, bacteria would go into the wounds and it would probably set up infection and your death would be imminent. And a Roman soldier would take a criminal under the direction of his leader, this being Pilate. And they took Jesus and they either strapped him to a stump or to a post. They spread his body out and they took this whip. And as they mocked him, as they shamed him, they began to beat him with this whip. And every single throw of the whip would latch into the body of Jesus. And as it began to stick, they would pull. And they would do it over and over until they thought it's within an inch of his life. I've heard sermons about this for many years. Growing up in the South, I heard preachers use this message and even witness dramatizations and reenactments. And oftentimes the pastor would describe this and he would take his arm forward and say, then they beat Jesus. And the reality is, is that your sin is what did this to Jesus. 
And they would use that in a way to bring condemnation and guilt and emotion. And I saw hundreds run to altars in sermons like this. And they would say, it was your sin that did it. Friend, it was because of sin, but no one did this to Jesus. Jesus did this for you. You did not do it to him. You ran astray. But he did this. He took on sorrow. Why? Because in this life we face sorrow and our God is not absent from our grief. He is the suffering servant. And he is the only place. His suffering, his shame is what takes away our suffering and our shame. He trades it. This is the story. This is the good news. Because the reality is, is you can't rub off the guilt. Like Pilate, you can wash your hands and go, no, I don't want, but here's the reality. None of us can absolve ourselves from our own guilt. So he took it for us. He fulfilled it. He did this at the fullness of time, at the right time, that you may see the glorious grace. That you may see the reality of sin and the good news of his grace. He did this all. And see, people couldn't see this coming, yet it was in their book hundreds of years before. The Jewish people rejecting and denying even to this day and hundreds of years before the prophet Isaiah would give us this prophecy. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that would draw, that we should look to him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way. And the Lord has laid on him our iniquity, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. How would they know they would arrest him and that Pilate would sit down at the seat of judgment, but by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities for he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, on Friday, a thief, on Sunday, a king, you were laid down in grief but you arose with the keys of death on that day. You are the firstborn of the slain, that man, Jesus Christ, who laid death in his grave. The curse of sin is broken and now you set us free, free to live, free to move, free to love without guilt or shame being compelled by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We thank you that you bore our shame so we don't have to be ashamed anymore. You took on our guilt so no longer fear of punishment and the woes of a guilty heart for you bore all of that. And because of that, you wash us white as snow. Jesus, carry us forward from this day to the next. In every way, let us acknowledge the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your glory and our good. And everyone said, Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?